Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Uh, my uh, People keep saying, hey, what do you do now that you don't have a real job? Um, <laughs> So uh, I am uh, executive conference minister. My job is uh, to go throughout BC and help churches stay on mission with Jesus, to encourage pastors, leadership teams uh, in their ministry. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of, um, can, be, can be very trying, a lot of crisis that we work through. Um, I don't know, people sometimes fight in church, what a concept. And so that's part of my role. Uh, my title, uh, executive conference minister, or my preferred title, most holy mega reverend. Um, <laughs> You can just call me Mega, <laughs> or uh, my actual title, Servant of Jesus. Um, so that's, uh, that's who I am. If you know me already, uh, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> I understand therapy helps, and if you don't know me, just forget you ever saw me. So let's get into the Word today. Uh, we're going to look at John chapter 15. Pastor Matt gave me a phenomenal passage to preach. Uh, I want to start by asking a uh, critical question. Um, how do you want to be remembered? At the end of your journey of life, what is the tagline that you would like people to put onto your tombstone? Uh, maybe it's near to my heart because my mom passed a few weeks ago and, you know, speaking with her friends and the taglines that they would give her. But I think it actually flows out of this passage, this taglines. It could also flow from a secret that I've never shared with this church. Um, I am the original BMX biker. I know, hard to believe, but when I was a little kid, I grew up in Victoria, near one of the oldest cemeteries in British Columbia, the Ross Bay Cemetery. And as a little kid, I, I was probably wasn't too um, concerned about the people who were lying beneath me, because I would take my bike and I would pedal like crazy, and then I would jump the tombs. It was great. It was great. It was an old cemetery, so the, you know, the roots and stuff were everywhere, and you could wipe out beautifully well. And, Often I'd face plants, and I don't even think Sherry knows this about me. Did you know this about me? Yeah, sorry, hon. Um, and so, but what it did for me was it, it started a lifelong um, uh, fascination with grave markers. I, it's not a grave, not, we don't go by that. I don't want to stop and read the grave markers to see what people said. It used to be the Facebook of the day, these grave markers. And over time, I've, I've uh, come to discover a couple snapshots of people's lives that I, that I have here that I want to share with you. These are some interesting epitaphs that are, are true and were written about people after they had passed. I, I didn't actually see this one, but I saw it in an article. Rodney Dangerfield, do you remember him, the comedian Rodney Dangerfield? His, his grave marker says, there goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. Um, up in Barkerville area, there's a grave that says, here lies good old Fred. A great big rock fell on his head. Yeah, yeah. There you have it. <clears throat> in Maryland, uh, here lies an atheist, all dressed up with no place to go. Uh, here lies my wife. I bid her goodbye. She rests in peace. Now so do I. <laughs> Who would write that stuff? I would never, honey. Never. Mm. In New Mexico, here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. <sighs> I didn't write this stuff. Uh, Nova Scotia. Here lies Ezekiel Eichel, age 102. Only the good die young. 
My absolute favorite comes from England. It's Anna Wallace's grave marker. Um, the children of Israel wanted bread. The Lord sent them manna. Old Clark Wallace wanted a wife. The devil sent him Anna. <laughs> yep. Each one of us will have a tagline. That's the thing. There will be some way you will be remembered. If you could write it, what would it be? Passage we're going to look at this morning uh, actually talks about uh, the preferred tagline that Jesus would have for our, our, our grave markers, for our lives. And it would go one of two ways. It would either say he or she abided closely or they produced much fruit. They produced much fruit. Wouldn't that be a great tagline to know that, that God actually would say of you, you produced much fruit. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them. And let's read through the passage uh, that is before us today to discover what God would say to us um, and go from there. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus speaking. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered and thrown uh, into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be, be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so, and so proved to be my disciples. What an amazing passage that's before us here. Three things that I want to talk about this morning. I'll give you a little bit of context, but three things I want to talk about this morning. The first in your outline should read, Union with Christ alone is the basis for a fruitful life. Union with Christ alone is the basis for a fruitful life. The second is this, the work of the Father is to make us more fruitful. And the third, the call of the disciple is to abide. Let's just give you a little bit of context before we look at those three points, but I just want to help you understand what's going on here. Uh, this is actually happening just before Easter. This is the the Thursday before Good Friday. Jesus is in, has been in the upper room with his disciples. It's just before his trial and crucifixion and he's met with his disciples and John says he showed them the extent or the fullness of his love. He washes their feet. He even washes the feet of the man who's going to betray him. He eats with them and gives the final words of instructions. At the end of chapter 14, John records Jesus as saying, rise, let's go from here. And so this particular story in the, in, the, in the upper room discourse happens while they're on the journey from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. I was in Jerusalem last January, a, week, a year ago, January, and so I can see the, the journey in my mind. It's kind of fun to, to be aware of. Uh, they are traversing from the south of the city, traveling up over probably over the Temple Mount, down through the Eastern Gate, and into the Kidron Valley, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And it's on this journey that Jesus proclaims his seventh and final I am statement. Chapter 15, verse 1 starts this way. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. It's important to understand that these I am statements of Jesus are, are nothing less than divine declarations. He attributes to himself the divine name of God, the great I am. It's the same name that God used to reveal himself to Moses back in, in uh, Exodus. The I am statements aren't merely statements of Jesus or sayings of Jesus. They are declarations. They are words of truth. They're declarations of divinity. So Jesus wants his disciples to understand something very unique about him. And here he declares that I am the true vine. Now I want you to understand that the vine was closely associated with ancient Israel. It was their national symbol. And I don't know. Uh, countries today use national symbols as well, right? So in, in uh, the United States, it's the turkey, not the turkey. <laughs> not, we're not talking, okay, before Trump. <laughs> what was it before Trump? Work with me, people. The eagle, right? It's the eagle. In Russia, it's the bear. Great Britain, it's the great lion. In Canada, the toothy beaver. That's a great national symbol. Of course, it's changed over time. We went from the beaver to the maple leaf and then to the loon. And now I understand it's the marijuana leaf is now our national symbol. But, you know, we have national symbols. So did, so did Israel. And the national symbol for Israel was the vine. Um, after the Greeks were routed from Israel by the Maccabees, they struck coins. And on the coin, they, they struck a, a vine with grape clusters because that was the national symbol of Israel. And Josephus, who is a great Roman historian who writes at this time, the time of Jesus, tells us that in Herod's temple, there was a great golden grapevine full of grape clusters that stretched from above the entrance to the temple right towards the holy place. And people regularly added to it. Families would pay great fortunes to add to this grape cluster. They wanted to be part of it. The grapes were the size of human beings. It's quite likely that that's where Jesus is as he's walking towards the, towards the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's heading up the Temple Mount, he's walking past the temple, looks up, sees the great, great cluster that, that, that represents Israel and says, Hey, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. But the national symbol for Israel actually found its roots in the Old Testament. It's a symbol that God used for his people. Uh, he does it in a number of places. I'll just read Psalm 80 for you here. It says, Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. So God says about it. Uh, Isaiah 5. Uh, it's a song of the vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted the choicest of vines there. Jeremiah 2. Yet I planted you, this is God speaking to Israel, I planted you a choice vine, holy, a holy pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? What's interesting about the Old Testament references to the vine, they all end exactly the same way. Wait, God talks about having planted a choice vine, the best of vines, in the best of locations. And each vine, the vine of Israel, was intended to bear fruit, to be a blessing to the nations. But instead of displaying God's glory, it produced what God calls sour grapes, bad fruit, 
and useless branches. Every time the vine is used in the Old Testament, it's used in the context of Israel's failure to accomplish what God had intended it to do. It's a useless vineyard. And it's in that context that Jesus declares and wants us to understand that he is the true vine. I'm the true vine, he declares. The real, the trustworthy, the sincere, the authentic, true vine. And so that starts us into our outline. First point I make is that union with Christ alone is the basis for a fruitful life. Union with Christ alone is the basis for a fruitful life. Jesus says in, in verse 1 of chapter 15, I am the true vine. It's an important statement for us to understand. Jesus is the true vine. Now, if you know me, you know that I love language and you know that I love words. I love these three words. What, four, five. Okay, I love all the words, but, but there are, I am, first of all, I am the true vine. It is, it is Jesus saying, I want you to understand that my declaration here is nothing less than a divine statement of being. I am the great ego, I me, the, the, I, the Yahweh, I am the true vine. And then the word that's used here is, I am the true vine. Not a true vine. But the true vine, I'm the direct object. I'm the one and only true vine. There is no other. I am the true vine. And then he says, I'm the true vine. As opposed to the rotten vine and the useless vine. I am the true vine. I am the real, authentic, trustworthy vine. And then I am the vine. I am the very source of being. I'm the vine. I'm not the branches. I'm the vine. It almost makes you hearken back to John 1, where John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the whole ego in me, right? I, I am. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, Jesus is not only the source of our physical existence, He's the source of our very spiritual existence. Jesus is the one and only authentic, true vine. There is no other source apart from him. And that's really important for us to understand. Because we live in a day and age where we're told that there's all kinds of vines. Jesus wants us to understand that every other vine will lead to destruction. He is the one, true, authentic, sent by God vine. You need to understand that. But in that context, there's this marvelous imagery, marvelous metaphor of intimacy that happens. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. And he says it all through, but in 4 and 5 I'll pick on. Um, Abide in me, and I in you. Isn't that amazing? Not only, I want you to abide in me, get close to me. I want you to understand, I am going to be in you. Abide in me, and I in you. As branches cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. See, Jesus wants to understand that he is the very source of our being. He is the vine. But we are the branches. And, and we're mutually interconnected. He calls us to abide or stay close to him. There's this profound relational metaphor here of intimacy. It's organic. It's intertwined. 
It's intended to emphasize the believer's necessary union with Christ. Jesus is the vine and we're the branches and we need to be commingled together. The critical commentary of the New Testament puts it this way. These verses describe the mutual inhabitation, a living, active interpenetration of Christ and the disciples. So much so that it's essential for continued fruitfulness. Does that not make you feel a little uncomfortable? The mutual, the living and active interpenetration. You ever think of Jesus penetrating into your life? That's the picture here. But it's a, it's a mutual and active interpenetration. As we engage the vine, we also penetrate into his. We draw our, our, the source of our being from him. See, the passage will tell you about two types of vines. There's a fruitless vine and the fruitful vine. But the primary point of the passage here is that branches are absolutely dependent on the vine. Life in the branch is not self-sustaining. It comes from the vine. That's self-evident, right? It flows from the branch into the vine. And so too, our spiritual life comes from Christ. Warren Wearsby puts it this way in his uh, commentary. The word fruit is used six times. The word abide is used 15 times in this chapter. It's important to note that the main point of the teaching here is our fellowship with Christ. We're called to embrace and maintain intimacy with Him. A close connectedness with Jesus, a continued connectedness with, the, and with intimacy with Jesus, it's essential for the Christian life. Without being connected to the vine, the branches are useless twigs. To put it plainly, Jesus says this, apart from me, you can't do anything. Let's just recognize that. Try doing life apart from Jesus. It is no life at all. It ends in death. So he says in verse 4 and 5 again, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. I love the phrase here, you can do nothing. It's two words that are, are stuck together. It's no power or powerless. And, and you know what I really love about it? It's in the present active indicative. Isn't that great? Huh? It's phenomenal. It's a present active indicative. You're useless. You're powerless. You lack the ability. Present tense, always useless by yourself. Active, you can try it. Not going to happen. An indicative. It's, it's actually absolutely normal. Have you ever cut a flower from a, a stem, a stalk, and you put it in a little vase, right? And you add a little bit of sugar and you add whatever, you know, the stuff. Have you noticed they all do the same thing in the end? Right? Why do we spend money on these things? I don't understand. Better spend money on motorcycles because they bring joy. But, but <laughs> flowers that die, I don't get. It's self-evident. And that's what Jesus is saying. You are unable to do anything. It's, it's useless to even try. The only hope for a faithful, fruitful life is an intentional, intimate union with Christ. Union with Christ alone is the basis for a fruitful life. And fruit is the identifying mark of people who are rooted in Him have union with him. In the passage, you'll find that fruit is used six times in eight verses. Two times Jesus says, 
So that, those that don't bear fruit. Once he says, disciples are branches that bear fruit. Then he says, bears more fruit. Then he says, bears much fruit. Twice he says that. The idea here, this is a present active infinitive. It's a continual present event. The life that is intimately connected with Jesus is continually in the process of producing the fruit of righteousness. Fruit in being connected to the vine. Fruit, more fruit, and abundance of fruit. Now you may wonder, well, what kind of fruit are you talking about? What does fruit look like? It's so hard to figure. Jesus doesn't actually tell us, but context really helps. See, fruit is the manifest character of the branch as a result of its connection to the vine. We have a tree in our backyard. It's an apple tree. Guess what it produces? Plums. No. What does an apple tree produce? Apples. Right? You want a plum tree? Aren't the plum tree? Exactly, Isaac. It's so self-evident, it's laughable. See, fruit here is the very nature and character of Christ. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Jesus said, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What's he saying? He's saying, look, every time that my life is made manifest in your life, the life of a believer, you produce a fruit that's characteristic of being connected to the vine. Ken Hughes in his commentary puts it this way. In John 15, the fruit Jesus speaks of is simply the reproduction of a life of the vine in the branch. It makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus is looking for fruit of his life in us. There must be something of the way of the vine in us if we belong to God. Paul spells it out this way in Galatians. It's a little clearer. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions. By the way, did you catch that? Those who, what did you, Christ Jesus? Belong, are connected, are part of Christ Jesus. See, at a minimum, the fruit of a Christian life is the evidence of Christ, that Christ is alive and at work in the heart of the believer, you and me. The fruit of faithfulness only comes through a close connection with Jesus. So let me just put you at rest here. If you look at your life and you say it's not very fruitful, you're going to find you're going to have one or two options. You either get on board or you get out. But you're not responsible for producing fruit. Fruit comes as a result of your connection to Jesus. It just does. So let me get to the second point. The work of the Father is to make us more fruitful. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. I am the... What vine is it? True. Yeah, yeah. And... Direct article, I am the what? I am the, the one and only, ain't no other, true vine. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it may produce more. I'm told vines are a very demanding plant. And a vineyardist needs to be really skilled to go in and cut away the dead wood and to to prune back the, the, uh, the branches so it produces fruit. Every gardener will do the same thing every spring. They will go into their garden and they will cut back the dead wood that's died over winter and they will prune 
the branches that are alive because they want to produce more fruit. Now, here's what you need to know about me as a gardener. I love to garden. Well, that's not really true. I love to prune. Pruning is one of my favorite things. I, I pent up all my anger from the entire year into that one day of pruning. So what you need to know is that Sherry hates it when I prune. So I prune very stealthily, either at night when she's asleep, <laughs> or I send her shopping. Go buy yourself something, honey, because I love you. And then she will say, you're not going to prune, are you? And I will say, would I do something like that? And she'll come back and my, our backyard will be, she's sure something like this. She's convinced that I like, I like to prune at the stock, just cut it. Prune with a chainsaw. I don't prune with a chainsaw. I prune with shears and clippers and all kinds of wonderful things. But there's something liberating about pruning. Jesus teaches us here that, that the father is the vine dresser. He's the one who prunes. And he teaches that he prunes in two ways. He prunes, he cuts away useless, fruitless branches. And he prunes fruitful branches. But either way, whether you are fruitless or fruitful, you will go under the knife. You just need to know that. Now let's talk about the removal of the fruitless branches because people get really uptight here. What, what's the passage talking? Is it talking about me? Maybe. The fruitless branches, generally there's two um, perspectives of what this means. When Jesus removes the fruit, fruitless branches, some people think that he is removing those who have lost their faith. They're now fruitless. People who used to trust in Jesus and now have fallen away through sin or just determined to walk away from the church. But I don't think that's a valid interpretation. And here's why. You always have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And in the context of this passage alone, you find that, that Jesus doesn't say they are now fruitless. They just never produced fruit. So you can't be talking about ones that produce once and then don't. But let's just go beyond that. What I discovered is even a more compelling argument is the promises of Jesus. See, the promises of Jesus don't allow us to lose what only He can give. That's our salvation. Do you know how much you are actually involved in the process of salvation? Exactly zero. It's all God's grace to you. And because it's God's grace to you, it is actually His prerogative to keep you there. Remember, it's His promise that He'll keep you there. Look from John itself, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has what kind of life? Eternal life. So how long is eternal life? Three weeks, six weeks, a year, 40 years. How long is eternal life? That's eternal, right? It's not temporal life. It's not they might have life, it's eternal life. And he actually makes this really clear point here. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have life. So in other words, there's something about what, what it really means to believe in the Son. John 5, 24. Truly, truly. I love the truly, truly sayings of Jesus. Truly, truly. In other words, he's saying, this is trustworthy. This is trustworthy. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has... What? What kind of life? You guys are so mousy. You know, I, I work with Chinese churches. They're not mousy. They yell out. What kind of life? 
Oh, come on, work with me. Um, eternal life. Yes, it's very exciting, very eternal life. I'm so excited. I have eternal life. I heard corpses that can say it better. What kind of life? Yeah! Of course. So if you know, was that an alarm, Isaac? If you know Jesus, if you have believed in him and obey his words, what kind of life do you have as a believer? Ah. John 6, 47. If you don't believe me, we'll do it again. Truly, truly. Another truly, truly. I say to you, whoever believes has. Yeah. John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them. Folks, we should be singing about this. Oh, we do. Anyways, it's a whole different story. Eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Is that not the great promise of Jesus? See, if you say there are people who lost their faith, you've missed it. Because people with eternal life have eternal life. And Jesus guarantees it. Some people say it's people who have lost their reward. I discredit that as well. Because the passage doesn't allow for that interpretation. The problem is that people don't only lose their reward, they're not only cut off and, and pushed away, they're actually burned, they're destroyed. It can't be people who lose their reward. I think it's one of two things. It works into two realities. What Jesus is talking about is people who are professing and people who are possessing. So that'll be my question to you. Are you professing Jesus or do you possess or does he possess you? If you have your Bibles, flip back to John chapter 8. In John 8, there's this marvelous interchange with Jews who believe Jesus. And he actually calls them sons of the devil. So, John 8, look at verse 30 with me. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. That's good, hey? They're professing. So then, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, this is good so far, right? They believed in him. If you abide, ooh, 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 where have we heard that word before? If you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, which is never a good thing, by the way. Don't answer Jesus, just listen to him. But I got that. No, no, just listen. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, really? Have you read the Old Testament? How is it that you say we will become free? What's amazing to me here is that the, the, the Jews decide to start to argue with Jesus about their status. They tried to explain away their attitudes and their actions rather than accept and engage his words. Look what he goes on to say, verse 44 following. You are of your father, the devil. Now, you never want to hear Jesus say that to you, okay? Just so we're clear. It's not good. You are of your father, the devil. And you will, your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you will convict me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? 
Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, what's the problem here? These are professing believers. Are they not? The problem is they're not possessing believers. To believe in Jesus is very different than to believe Jesus. Do you get that? <coughs> to believe in Jesus is very different than to believe Jesus. One is to profess, the other is to possess or to own. Professing Jesus is different than possessing Jesus. It's easy to say, I follow Jesus, I possess, profess Him. It's an entirely different to actually follow Jesus, to possess Him, or better still, to be possessed by Him, owned by Him. And you say, okay, well, that's really good, that's John 8, so I, I, I don't think it applies to John 15. Well, to go, go to John 13. John 13 is the story of Jesus washing His disciples' feet. It's the start of the upper room discourse. And in the upper room discourse, Jesus has just washed Judas's feet, and he says this thing. Uh, verse 21, John 13, Jesus says, uh, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain whom he spoke, of whom he spoke. But one of the disciples, whom he loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to Jesus and asked him, uh, of whom he was speaking. By the way, this is hilarious. Uh, so they're reclining, right? John's right next to Jesus, and Peter in typical fashion. Hey, John, you ask him. Who's he talking about? Right? John, Peter doesn't say, oh, Jesus, who are you talking about? It's like, no, no, John, you, you do it. Anyways. So, so, work with me, folks. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, that's John, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, Jesus gave him a very plain answer. Jesus said, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread that he, when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Who is the one who's going to betray him? Yeah, but I think so. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe I got it wrong. Look what it says. It's funny. Um, so Jesus said, uh, After he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now look at verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Well, how could they have missed it? Jesus says, I'm troubled in spirit. One of you is going to betray me. Peter nudges John. John says, hey, which one of us is it? Jesus says, I'll tell you. It's the guy I give the morsel of bread to after I've dipped it. He gives the morsel of bread. And says, what you're going to do, go do quickly. And everyone goes, oh, wonder what he's talking about. <laughs> Why? Because Judas was professing to follow Jesus. He didn't actually follow Jesus. He leaves Jesus to betray him, consumed by the world, filled with the devil. Not convicted by the word. Judas had been there the whole time when Jesus is washing the feet. He missed everything that Jesus had said. The word had not penetrated to his heart. Remember, he didn't like the tack that Jesus was taking. He pretended to be a disciple. He professed to be a disciple. But he had no relationship with Jesus. In the final analysis, there was no relationship at all. He failed to possess or be possessed by Jesus in his word. I don't know about you, but I find in this passage all of a sudden a helpful alarm causes me to pause. 
And I want to ask you some questions that I've been asking myself. Do you profess Jesus? Or do you possess Jesus? Do you claim to follow him but fail to allow his word to penetrate your heart? See, it's easy to profess Jesus. To pretend to be his disciple. But the litmus test of is your obedience to him. That's what Jesus says. What's your relationship to Jesus? Professed or possessed? We can grow up in the church and never surrender our hearts to Jesus. So my question to you is, do you know him as your Savior and Lord? And are you determined to be obedient to him and his word? Or as Jesus would put it, does your life produce fruit in keeping with being connected to me? To be a Christian is to bear fruit, the fruit of the character of Christ. And if there's no fruit, you have to ask the question, is there genuine belief? Some claim to be in the vine, but the absence of fruit disqualifies them. There is no fruit in their lives. And so it becomes important for us to ask the question about the authenticity of our faith. Those who profess Jesus but fail to possess Jesus produce fruit that is cut off and cast away because there's no fruit at all. But here's what he says to people who do believe in him. Every, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, Jesus says, that it may bear more fruit. The Father prunes every fruitful branch. And if you're connected with Jesus, if you abide in the vine, you need to know that God is at work in your life pruning and cleansing you with the goal of allowing you to experience the joy of producing more fruit to the Father's glory. Each spring you'll find gardeners working in their vineyards. If you go to Abbotsford, you'll see them on the raspberry crops. Now they're doing blueberries. Working away, pruning, cleansing, taking away. If you go back in the summer, you'll enjoy the fruits of their labor as, as even more fruit is produced. See, if you are faithful, you will not be spared from pruning. You just need to know that. It's actually God's gift to you. The health of the branch is directly proportionate to the pruning it will receive. And pruning is the activity of God to strengthen you and build you up, to make you even more fruitful and more Christ-like. And it's important for us to understand that when we face the challenges of life. Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I was prone to wander and do things my own way. But the pruning I received reoriented my life. Psalm 1971, same, same writer. It was good for me when I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. What's he saying? That when I look at the affliction I've had, the challenges I've had, I see them as acts of God's grace to me and reasons for me to be thankful. Psalm 19, 119, 107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. See, pruning tunes and turns our lives towards God's sustaining grace. As sometimes pruning comes as a result of sin. But other times it comes as God shapes us and molds us to be more fruitful. Pain will do one of two things to you. It'll either make you better or it'll make you bitter. One is the fruit of the vine. The other is the product of deadwood. I like what Malcolm Muggeridge says about this in his book, Rediscovering Jesus. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. 
I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, this man to feel overly important and overly pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he'd never suffered. I met lots of people who've gone through very hard times and the ones who have turned to Jesus have found great joy and more fruitfulness as they discover the wonder of God's grace. And James says the same thing. James says, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's pruning, purpose in pruning is to make us more productive. And what he wants us to know, Jesus wants us to know, is that his word is one of the best instruments he uses for pruning. Look at verse 3, chapter 15. Already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. By the way, the word clean and prune come from the same root, catharsis. It means to clean out. John proclaims, Jesus proclaims the purifying effect of his word. God's word, when applied to our lives, has the ability to cleanse us. It has cleansing properties. A significant aspect of remaining united with Christ is being infused by his word. Letting it clean out the dross of our lives. And Jesus says to his disciples, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Allowing the word to prune our perspectives brings cleanliness. Allowing the word to cleanse and renew our thinking is really important. We're called to allow the word to inform and shape our attitudes and our actions. To allow the word to transform us from the inside out. Allow the word to produce in us the fruit of righteousness. See, a life that's connected to Jesus undergoes a regular practice of pruning. That is evidenced in a growing measure of fruitfulness. That gives God glory in the process as we become more and more of who God's called us to be. So, here's the question I have for you. What's your responsibility in all this? We're called to remain in the vine. That's where fruitfulness happens. We're called to be prepared to be pruned because that's what God's going to do to us. What's your responsibility? Well, one simple word. Abide. Isn't that a great word? Abide. What's your responsibility? Remain in the vine. Abide. Verse 7 and 8. Listen, listen to what Jesus has to say. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's the one big takeaway today? Abide. Stay close to Jesus. The word abide, it, the Greek word is meno. So we've got it half beat already as Mennonites. Hey? It just proves the Mennonites are God's chosen people. Not really. Only one end of meno. But anyways. But the word means to abide. It means to remain. By the way, it's a present active subjunctive, a continual determination or desire of the heart. Not indicative, it is subjunctive. In other words, my heart is to remain in Jesus. That's the call. The word abide means to remain in place, to dwell, to take up residence. It also can be translated to snuggle. Have you ever had a, a newborn snuggle into you, right into your chin? You just like, they're there and you just. Right? And, and all they, they just keep wiggling to get closer and closer and closer. It's really uncomfortable if you're a guy. But <laughs> have you ever had that? That's the word picture that's used here. Snuggle into Jesus. 
Give yourself to be as close to him as possible. Um, some of you have lived here a long time, all your lives, like 50 plus years, right? Gord, how long have you lived here? Yeah, all your life. You're going to tell me your age, right? No, okay. Some of us have lived here almost 70 years. <laughs> Not saying you, Gord, but some of us have. Yeah, that's right. Like Walt, almost 80, but you know. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Some of you have lived here a long time. You are abiders. You set, you set roots into one place. You give yourself to being there. See, the, the, the word of, to abide, the call to abide is this continual commitment to take up residence in Jesus, to dwell in Jesus, to remain in place in Jesus, to find your person and your being in the person and being of Jesus. And once you understand how much John loves this word, in this chapter alone, he uses it 11 times. You think he's trying to make a point? In his gospel, he uses the word 40 times. In his epistles, 1, 2, 3, John, he uses it 27 times. See, this is the beloved disciple who knows how to lean up against Jesus, to get close to Jesus, to hear the heart of Jesus. That's the picture that's being painted here. Do you know Jesus? There's a lot said these days about orientation. I don't know if you've heard much about that, but I actually think it's a really good word. I think it should be a big word for our society, for, for us in particular as believers. And I'm not talking about sexual orientation. Who cares? And I'm not talking about gender orientation. It doesn't matter. What I'm talking about is spiritual orientation. The biggest issue of life is our spiritual orientation. Are we oriented towards Jesus? Do we abide in Him? Are we determined to press into Jesus? What's the orientation of our life? Is it in and towards Jesus? Then the other stuff takes care of itself. Some of us don't understand that, that being a believer, a disciple, is based on the contact principle. And the contact principle is simply this. We're called to be connected, to remain in Jesus. And too many of us have adopted a, a filling station perspective about our faith. We come to church once a week and we get fueled up and we hope it's going to last. But that's not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is contact. Jesus calls us to embrace the contact principle, to abide in Him. We're called to remain in constant contact with Him. So let me share with you three, which is really seven ways to abide in Jesus. I won't give you all seven. It is funny, my heading does say three, and my notes say seven. Um, <clears throat> someone made a typo. Here's the... <laughs> lots of commas in here, Bruce. Here's the first principle to abide. Stay connected to the true vine. Stay connected to the true vine. Jesus says at the very beginning, I am the true vine. And in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. He uses it five times. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. You think Jesus wants to make a point to his disciples? Abide in Jesus. Stay connected to the true vine. It's a determination of our, 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 our very being to say, I will stay true to Jesus. See, we live in an age where we are easily susceptible to crafting and creating the Jesus of our own making. Our own liking. We like to create a Jesus that suits our situation. A Jesus that, that follows us. 
We like to edit and redact Jesus into the person that suits our reality. We fail to get to know and fail to embrace the true vine, the true Jesus as revealed in the word. I said in the first service, we have a friend that, that struggles with homosexuality. And, and that in and of itself is not a big deal. Right? We all struggle with something. My, my lament for him is that rather than pressing to Jesus, he's decided to go to a church that affirms what he's doing. That's not the true Jesus. You just need to know that. I love him. He is my true friend. I lament what he's doing. We often redact and edit Jesus and reduce him until he suits our lifestyle or our preferences. We try to graft Jesus into the dead wood of our lives. It does not work. He will not be grafted in. He will not share his glory with anyone. We're invited instead to come alive by being grafted into the one true vine. To avoid following the Jesus of our making and to abide in the true vine. A number of years ago I preached here and I remember a phrase I used and it sticks in my head regularly. That Jesus plus or minus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Here's a second piece I would give to you. Principles for abiding in the vine. Allow the word to inform and infuse your life. Abide in the word. That's what Jesus says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish. Believe and put into practice the very word of God. Let it permeate your life. Let your life be so saturated by the word that it actually informs and infuses you. Weave the word into the fabric of your life. Stand on the word. Allow it to, to transform you. Root yourself in God's promises, not the promises of people around you, regardless of the circumstances of your life. Whether you're in despair or sin or pain or disappointment, trust God and hold on tight. Some people spend way too much time trying to produce fruit, trying to get it right, working really hard, when we are simply called to abide. We're not called to do the work of God. That's the Father's prerogative to prune and, and make sure we bear more fruit. We're not called to produce fruit. Production of fruit is a result of remaining in the vine. We are called to do one sure and certain thing. And that is what? Abide. Stay close to Jesus. There's one great life lesson out of this. The one responsibility you have is to abide in Jesus. So hear me ask the question. Do you struggle with sin in your life? I always do to some extent. More often than not though, I, I talk to people who are really struggling and their natural inclination is to redouble their efforts. If I just work a little harder, if I just do a little bit more, if I just have more self-control, if I just have more accountability partners around me, the problem is you don't live with them 24 seven. To work harder and to overcome sin that so easily entangles us will not work if you try to do it of your own efforts. Now, all the efforts are good. You know, it's good to have accountability partners and it's good to, to have self-control. But if you do that alone, apart from Jesus, you will not produce any fruit. You will not be able to break the bond of sin. We can't do it. We need Jesus. So what's the answer if you're struggling with sin? Abide. Abide in Jesus. Orient 
yourself to get to know and experience Jesus all the more. Allow his presence to infuse and inform you. Abide in the word. Get to know the promises of God. Learn them and lean into them and put them into practice. And allow the word of God to clean and reorient your life. Practice the presence of Christ in all things. He says, abide in me and I in you. It's that mutual promise. And you will find as you abide in Christ that the sins that were once so daunting that controlled your life will begin to diminish. Because sin has no power and no place in the presence of Jesus. You don't need more self-control. You need more Jesus. Abide in him and him in you and you will find that the fruit of abiding will begin to manifest manifest itself in areas that you never thought would have happened. Your task, my task, abide in the vine. God's task, prune and produce. Abiding in the word is the fruit of faithfulness. Anyways, seven more points but no time. Which is new for me. Let me just share with you this final thought. Understand that union with Christ, with Christ alone, the true vine, is essential if you want to have a fruitful life. Understand that the work of the Father is to prune your life so you will be more fruitful. But understand that your one and only responsibility is to abide in the person of Jesus and the power of his word. And you will discover that you will attune your life so beautifully to his that you will be able to ask whatever you want and it will be given to you. By the way, that's not like I want a new car. Because the thing is your life will be transformed to start to pray for the things that matter to God. And it will give you the desires of your heart. And all to God's glory as we evidence our faithfulness through the fruit we produce. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious. Your word is powerful and true. On our own, there's nothing we can do. But in you, Jesus, the true vine, as branches that abide, that remain, that stay connected, your power flows through us as the Father prunes away the dross of the world, the, the deadwood of the world, so that we might produce faith, produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. So I would pray, would you make us faithful? Would you make us bold? If there's people here today who don't know you, would you, would you give them a boldness to not only profess you, but now to be possessed by you and committed to, to being true to your word? Father, fill us and make us fruitful for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.